chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Some things in life are so easy for us to miss. On August 21st, 2017, while I was in Kansas City in seminary, I was fortunate enough to get to see a total solar eclipse. I had been waiting for that day my whole life, thinking it was probably never going to happen. Most people don't really get to see something like that. And it was one of the coolest things that I have ever witnessed in my entire life. I was preparing for it beforehand. I had these special glasses that I had gone and bought so I could stare directly at it as it was happening. I looked at the exact time it was going to happen to make sure I cleared my schedule. I was going to be able to go outside and to stare up at the sky as it was going on. I was checking weather reports to make sure it wasn't going to be too cloudy, willing to drive a little bit one way or the other to be able to make sure that I was able to see what I was wanting to see, this total solar eclipse. And all of that prep is really important whenever it comes to something like that because with the total part of the total solar eclipse is really only about one to three minutes long. It's not very long at all. You've got a very short window in which you're going to be able to see it. You have to be in just the right place at just the right time to be able to see the moon completely and totally cover the sun for just a few minutes. So about 15 minutes before anything had happened, what I did was I went outside, put on my glasses, and I just stared right up at the sky, staring, waiting, Looking, You could see the moon moving closer and closer and closer to the sun. And I had two roommates at that time. And they both said, yeah, we, we really want to see this. Whenever it comes time, come get us. We want to come and we want to watch. And neither one of them were with me. And it kept getting closer and closer and closer. And I could tell we were, we were so close to the time. We didn't have much time left. So I went inside and I just yelled, hey, it's about to happen. Make sure you guys are out here. Went back outside, stared up at the sky, closer, closer, closer. It was just about to touch the sun, just about to be where it was about to start covering a little tiny sliver of it. And I went inside and I banged on their doors and said, hey, it's happening right now. If you don't come outside right now, you're going to miss it. And I went outside and I began to see it start to cover it slowly until eventually it was covering the whole thing. And one of them still wasn't out there. He had fallen asleep. He had taken a nap, and he missed it. It was that easy that this exhausted seminary student who had been up early that morning before writing a paper, studying his Greek, decided to take a nap and missed his shot to see something that most of you in this room probably have never seen, a total solar eclipse. It was that easy to miss. It was that simple to be distracted. In our text today, we will be able to see three ways to miss the point. Three ways that we might miss what we are wanting to see in this text. Because it's that easy for us to do. First of all, we might miss the point by focusing on our desire rather than on our duty. That's what's happening to the chief priests in this text. The chief priests and the scribes had an obsession. Verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, him being Jesus here. What they wanted more than anything else at this particular moment in time was to kill Jesus. They were seeking to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. This plot, this conflict has been forming throughout the book of Mark repeatedly. It's been building and building to this final crescendo that we're about to reach in the book of Mark. 
In Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees were meeting with Herodians to figure out how to destroy Jesus. The scribes said he was demon-possessed later in that same chapter. John was arrested and killed by the state, setting the stage for a prophet to die in that same way in that same time period. He called the Pharisees hypocrites in chapter 7. They were demanding a sign of his legitimacy in chapter 8, and they just got completely blown off. Jesus didn't give them what they were looking for. He threw them all out of the temple in chapter 11. And they were testing him with hard questions in chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12. His final address publicly in his earthly ministry in chapter 12 had a specific section and focus that were contradicting the beliefs and the practices of the scribes. And now we're in chapter 14 and they have had enough. They're done with this guy. They don't want the conflict to continue. They want to win it. They can't ignore him. He's too popular. They can't beat him. He's too wise. They can't overpower him. The people are on his side. Let's just kill him. Let's just get rid of him. That's the only chance we have to be able to be rid of this conflict that we have to have throughout this entire last three years. They had to figure out how to arrest him stealthily to turn him over to the Romans. Because arresting him publicly would have incited the crowds to come up against them. It would have caused an uproar. But the Romans, they're so powerful, the crowd wasn't going to be able to overtake them. If they could just arrest him and hand him over, that was how they were going to be, going to be able to get rid of him. The problem with that is this wasn't a well-thought-out plan. These weren't criminal masterminds. These weren't master assassins who were coming along, repelling from the ceiling to drop poison into his drinks. These were the thoughts of maniacs, of obsessed people. It's Wiley Coyote buying up dynamite, hoping that eventually, someday, it's finally going to work this time. Whatever it takes, we've got to get this guy. And their obsession, their desire to kill Jesus at any cost, that kept them from performing their duties. They allowed what they wanted to do to stop them from doing what they were supposed to do. Verse 2, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Notice, lest there be an uproar from the people. Not, not during the feast, it's the feast of unleavened bread and the Passover. No, a holy week, a holy time set aside in the worship of our Lord. That's not the reason they couldn't do it. They didn't want to do it because they were afraid of an uproar from the people. That's when this is happening. We're two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The reason in chapter 11 there was such a great crowd following Jesus up into Jerusalem is because the city in this time, in this week, was going to grow to five times its normal size. Jewish people from all over were coming to the city to make their sacrifices in the temple, to remember the previous salvation of God in the Passover. To hope for a future salvation when he would once again redeem his people from their oppression. Where he would once again give them a hope and a future, a new way of life. There was five times the normal opportunity for the priests and chief uh, scribes to be able to do what they were supposed to do. To be able to perform their duties, to do their job of service. But what are they spending their time on in this time, in this period? Hey, how do we kill him? How do we kill Jesus? How do we get rid of him? Not how do we deal with the influx of people? How do we make sure that they're all able to offer their sacrifices? That everything's well-ordered? How do we make sure that they aren't just doing this out of road obedience, but actually delivering and offering a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God for bringing their ancestors out of Egypt? 
How do we make clear to them that when they do this, they aren't only looking back, they're also looking forward to that future salvation? They weren't focused on any of those things, any of their duties, any of the reasons they existed as as the chief priests and scribes. They weren't focused on any of what might help them to do what God had given them to do. They were focused on what they wanted to do in their sin. And I actually think it's really easy for us to miss the point in a similar way today. We can get so caught up in what we want, how we've always done things, how it affects us, that we forget to focus on what God has given us to do. We here at Pleasant Grove Baptist Church exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our duty. That's our purpose. That's our job. To whatever extent our desires, our other obsessions, what we want gets in the way of performing that duty, fulfilling that purpose, we've missed the point. We're committing the same sins, the same problems that they were doing. We're plotting for how to get what we want rather than focusing on being able to perform the service that he has given us to do, that he's given us to perform. So we have to be willing to set aside what we want in order to do what we must when the time comes. We have to be able to set aside our comfort in order to do what we must when the time comes. Whatever's going to help us glorify God and enjoy him forever by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ, that's what we have to do. That has to be our focus. If we aren't willing to do that, then we've missed the point in a similar way that the chief priests and scribes did here. Another way we might miss the point in our text today is to focus on utility rather than on beauty. Pick it up at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Notice what was the complaint of the people when the woman anointed Jesus. What did they say? What a waste. We could have done something better with this. We could have done something more with this. A waste. They thought her using that resource in that way was pointless. It was wasteful to do what she did. This pure nard, the text says in the text, it's very costly. Some people at that time valued these ointments so highly that they were passed down as family heirlooms from one generation to the next. It was a prized possession. They were stored in a flask with a long neck and a sealed top to try to keep the scent in. The only way to get it out was to break it. It's one-time use. It's not something you could go go back to over and over again. Once you used it, it's gone. You break the neck, you pour it out, and then you don't have it anymore. It was used in this text. And they saw that as a waste. They said, what's the point here? We could have done so much more with that. 
It's not just that you wasted it. It's that I know what should have happened with it. I would have used it better than she did. I would have given it to the poor. Jesus, wouldn't you like for me to have done that instead? Rather than to honor you with this sacrifice, rather to give you this ultimate prized possession, I should have sold it, given it to the poor. Now, from the other gospel accounts, we know that the people who objected here in this text, they weren't just random people who happened to be in the room. These were the disciples. Jesus' followers were the ones who had a problem with the woman's actions. And there's an element to which we hear these objections and we kind of think, isn't that right? That actually sounds like something Jesus would want them to do. Sell it, give it to the poor. He's literally telling people throughout his gospels, hey, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Aren't we supposed to care for the poor, the sick, the hungry? Doesn't he say elsewhere for a rich man to sell all that he has and to give it to the poor? If it's okay for the woman to do this with this most prized possession, why wasn't Jesus' answer then, hey, go sell everything you have, buy up the entire cologne section of Dillard's and come and pour it on me? That's not what he said then. He said to sell it and give it to the poor. So why is it wrong now for us to do what he said for that other man to do then? How does this make sense? Well, first I think we have to clarify what Jesus isn't saying in verse 7 when he says this. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. He's certainly not saying that they shouldn't care for the poor. They should. He wants them to. He's saying, you can do that. You should do that. You'll always have the opportunity to be able to do that. He's not going back on what he told the rich young ruler when he told him to sell everything and to give it to the poor. Jesus loves the poor. He was poor. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head in his earthly ministry. But he's actually saying something very similar in both texts, if we'll understand the meaning of what he's saying in both texts. The rich young ruler wasn't supposed to sell everything he had because stuff is bad. And giving everything you have to the poor, that's what's going to save you. That's the ultimate purpose of your life. He was supposed to get rid of all that he had because he loved having it more than he wanted to follow Jesus. He liked his stuff more than he liked his king. More than he wanted to honor and glorify and praise Jesus. He wanted to keep what he had. And I think... The underlying principle is the same thing here. It's not that the ointment couldn't have been sold and given to the poor. It's that holding on to it, holding on to it because it's prized, holding on to it because it's valuable, rather than offering it in service and love and praise to Jesus, that's the issue. Using it for another purpose, that is, that's the waste. That's what you're not supposed to do. First of all, the disciples didn't exactly have pure motives when they said this, when they had this objection. John recounts what is likely a different anointing at a different time and a different place, but it's very similar to this. And in that instance, he specifically says, you know, the one who complained whenever that happened that other time, that was Judas. He was the one who objected. And the reason he was complaining, the reason he wanted the ointment to be sold so that the money could be given to the poor is because he's the one who had the basket in which they kept the money which was going to be given to the poor and he would take a little bit off the top every once in a while he would fill his own pockets with that money that was supposed to be used and given to the poor 
So when Judas was complaining, what he actually wanted was for the money from the sale of the nard to go into the pot because that was where he would have access to it. So the motives here weren't pure. The motives here weren't perfect. But more importantly, the end reason, not the first reason, not the only reason, but the end reason that one would sell all that they have, that one would sell the most important thing they have, that one would sell this ointment of pure nard and to give it to the poor, the end reason you would do that is ultimately to glorify God. That's the end reason we do anything is ultimately to glorify God. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So when you have God in the flesh, right in front of you, and you have every chance and opportunity to love, honor, praise, and serve him, doing anything else, that's the waste. Even if you're thinking this is going to make Jesus happy, well, you can directly make Jesus happy. You can serve him right then. You can honor him right then. Guess what she did very directly? Just that. She was anointing and worshiping God with the costly perfume. She was going and doing directly what they claimed they wanted to do indirectly. Because they were focused on utility. They were focused on the nuts and bolts of day-to-day needs. They were focused on the worldly, the earthly, the immediate, the physical. But she was focused on the beauty of God, the beauty of the Lord, the beauty of Jesus Christ. She was focused on the worship of Jesus. And I think one of the reasons we have that check in our spirit when we read this text, when we hear the complaint of the disciples and go, oh, wait, isn't that right? Even though hypocrisy and excess we've seen in church throughout its history surely plays a part in that check. I think the reason we actually have it is because who discount beauty and service as justification in and of itself. We think it would be better for us to deal with the nuts and bolts, with the physical, with the immediate, with the earthly, rather than to focus on the beauty that's before us. But notice what Jesus says about what she does. Look at verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. They call it a waste, but what does Jesus call it? He says it's a beautiful thing. What she has done is beautiful, and it has been done to me. Jesus, who is God, the most lovely object of all of our affections, the one who is truly beautiful, calls what she does beautiful. And he says it as if that's the only reason he has to give. No, what she did is beautiful to me. That's enough. Loving me, serving me, giving me this gift and honor and praise, that was enough. It's beautiful. I'm afraid for many of us, our senses have started to grow dull. We aren't willing to stare beauty in the face like we should. We aren't willing to do that which is beautiful like we should. Because we're focused on the tangible, on the immediate, on the utilitarian. Rather than thinking, no, beauty is good enough. This service is good enough. He is worth it. But we're told specifically in the Bible to focus on beauty. Philippians 4, 8 says this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, 
If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. God who is beautiful. God who made the very idea of beauty. God who gave that idea of beauty to his people. God who made the things that we designate to be beautiful actually cares that we notice and think about that which is lovely. That which he has given us. That he has called beautiful. That he has made beautiful. When we do beautiful things, when we notice excellence, I think there's something divine that we're picking up there. I think there's something deeper there than what we tend to think about when we think about beauty. The disciples were focused on utility, but she was willing to forsake the spreadsheets, to forsake the immediate physical needs in favor of that which was simply beautiful in and of itself. The son of God who is sitting before her. And this beautiful and lovely act was deemed so, not simply on its own merits, not just this is a beautiful thing, but this is a beautiful thing to me, for me. It was deemed beautiful because of the reason why it was done, because of who it was done to. You see, the world around us also has a concept of beauty. It's vain and vapid. It's hollow and shallow beauty on the surface. A focus on aesthetics as an end to itself or for the building up of human egos, that's not true beauty. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. It was so beautiful to him. It was so lovely because it was done to him and for him. We as a church, we as the people of God, should care about and focus on beauty. Because. Because it's beautiful. We should focus on excellence because, because it's excellent. We should focus on goodness because, because it's good. There's something divine within that concept of goodness because anything we know to be good is only good because it's pointing us to the God who is good. Everything we know to be beautiful is only beautiful because it points us to the God who is beautiful. So when we notice beauty and excellence and goodness, we should be willing to just take a breath, to just take it in, to just enjoy it for itself. And then to think, how can this be used for the glory and honor of God? How can this be given back to the one who gave it to us? We should focus on beauty and the pursuit of excellence. But not just because, not so that people will think about us in certain ways, but because by pursuing excellence and beauty in everything we do for God and in the service of God, our sacrifice is deemed beautiful by God. So when we sing, let's sing well, let's sing loud, let's sing proud. When we serve, when you are greeted Sunday morning, so you smile at the people who are coming in, Let's do that with, that with excellence. Let's do that with beauty. When we think about the physical gifts that we have been given, the physical resources we have in this church, let's make them beautiful. Let's maintain them. Let's make it look good. Not simply so that it, it looks good, but because when we do that which is excellent, we are tapping into what God has given us and shown us in himself. And when we do that in service of God and in love for God, 
He deems that service beautiful. He deems that excellence worthy. We should pursue beauty even in that which is ordinary. The only person in this text today, other than Jesus, who didn't miss the point was this woman. She saw Jesus as worthy of whatever she could give him. She wanted to lavish her greatest luxury on him directly. Is he not worth that? For these brief moments when the ointment was flowing down Jesus' head, what she was getting was a glimpse of what he deserves. She was able to love, serve, praise, and worship him with just a fraction of what he actually should receive. And Jesus deemed her action as beautiful. Because in verse 8, he says this, She has done what she could, what she was able to do. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Without knowing it, without knowing the sacrifice he was about to commit for her, on her behalf, she was preparing his body for what it was going to endure. She was preparing Jesus for the cross, which was going to show him as worthy of all of this praise. The cross which would save her soul. The cross which would, would unite her to the Lord forever. She simply did what she could. And what she could was to refuse to miss the point. She focused on beauty rather than utility. Judas, however, did miss the point. And he did so in the third way that we'll see from our text this morning, by focusing on opportunity rather than fidelity. That's how Judas missed the point. He focused on opportunity rather than fidelity. You see, he was focused on the opportunity he had for gain. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. He was focused on the opportunity he had for gain. The chief priests and the scribes, they were looking for an opportunity to get rid of Jesus, to arrest him, to kill him. We know from John's gospel that they had basically offered a reward for anyone who was going to have information that might let them do that. And Judas, conspicuously close to this incident, where he's rebuked for failing to see Jesus as worth 300 denarii. That's how much the the nard was worth. Basically a year's salary. He's willing to offer Jesus up to them immediately after that. And we know from Don's gospel that what Judas eventually receives, the money that they offered him, was 30 pieces of silver, which is roughly 120 denarii. So less than half of the worth of this one bottle of costly perfume, that Notice the math there. Judas thinks that spending 300 denarii on the worship of Jesus, that's a waste. How dare you do that? But he's willing to betray Jesus, to have him killed and receive his reward, and that reward is 120 denarii. Somehow not a waste. Look at the value that we're seeing here. Do you see how little Jesus is valued by those who miss the point in this text? His very life is worth less than half a bottle of costly perfume to them. To the chief priest who set the price and to Judas who ultimately accepts it. He was so focused on the opportunity for his own gain that he must have forgotten all of those economics classes that he took at Jerusalem University. It's just a bad deal. You're giving up a whole man's life for half a bottle of perfume? 
one of those was a waste and the other one wasn't. And you're wrong about which one it is. What Jesus should have been focusing on was the fidelity of his service, the loyalty to his king. The text says in verse 10, and we know from the rest of Scripture, he was one of the twelve. He's one of Jesus' closest twelve followers, his disciples. He's in the inner circle. Just as the chief priest should have been focusing on the upcoming festival, Judas should have been focused on Jesus, on the worship of him, the service of him, following him, not killing him. After this incident, you think that the reaction would be, okay, Jesus really liked it when that woman did that thing. How about I go out and I find a bottle, a flask of pure nard, and I anoint him like that? That service was deemed worthy of eternal recognition by Jesus. Why don't I do the same thing? You think that would be the logical reaction? He liked it when she did it. Now everyone's going to hear about her action. So toss me in that group, Jesus. Here's some anointing for me too. But instead, what he's doing is seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus for his own gain, rather than to serve Christ and remain faithful to his master. Judas missed the point. But it struck me this week, while I was reading this text over and over, you know who perfectly fulfilled exactly what all these other people were supposed to be doing? The one who never missed the point here? It was Jesus. He didn't miss any of these. If he had an obsession, he was obsessed with fulfilling his duty. Whereas the chief priests and scribes were obsessed with killing Jesus rather than doing their job, Jesus was focused on being killed, which was his job. He knew what was awaiting him in Jerusalem. He had predicted it three times on his way there. He knew before he was incarnate what was going to happen. It had been ordained before the foundation of the world that he was going to die on the cross. Before he created the world, before he created the wood on which he was going to be killed, he knew what was going to happen. And it was the will of the Father to crush him. And Jesus did it anyway. He didn't miss the point. He fulfilled his duty. He went to Jerusalem anyway. He threw the chief priests and scribes out of the temple anyway. He came and was a man anyway. He did his job. And through that job, he has brought many sons to glory. He was also beautiful, and he made us beautiful. He wasn't focused on utility, but on his own beauty and glory, that he might make us, his people, bear that same glory. He saved us and made us beautiful in his sight. Ephesians 5, uh, verse 25, says this, Husbands, your wives, as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He was so focused on beauty, on that which was excellent and good, that he makes his people beautiful. He sees us as excellent and good. He had so much beauty in himself that we are able to receive that same beauty when we're united to him, when he saves us. And he was faithful and humble. Whereas Judas was looking for the opportunity to bring about his own gain, Jesus, Philippians says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus was faithful and humble, willing to suffer himself that he might save his people from their sins. He was faithful to enact perfect obedience, never sinning, and then eventually dying an atoning death in the place of sinners like us, before rising from the dead to give us the life that he earned for us if we would just repent from our sins and believe in him. If you want to know the best way not to miss the point, the best way not to miss the beauty of Jesus in this text, that's it. Repent and believe. See him for who he is. See him as the beautiful one he is. Give him all the honor, worship, and praise that you have. Be willing to forsake even that which is costly in service of him. Focus on him as the point of all reality, worthy of whatever worship you might have to offer. That's how you might not miss the point today. That's how we can walk in his steps and follow him. Not missing the point, but being faithful with every day. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to see you as the point today. To know that though we might miss it, your grace is sufficient for us. To know that though we're not worthy of it, your sacrifice was given for us anyway. Help for us to have the right focus. To do that which we should do. Rather than what we want to do, let us do what you've given us to do, what you've tasked us to do. Let us glorify you forever and enjoy you as we glorify you. Let us not only be disciples, but make disciples. God, help us. It's so easy for us to focus on other things, on the world, on the physical, on that which is right before us, on the real needs we see around us, rather than the worship of you rather than the beauty of who you are. God, help us to remain faithful, that we might not be distracted, that we might not lose our focus, but that we might persevere to the end, that you will hold us fast as your people. We love you and we thank you for all this and more. In Jesus' name, amen.